Here's what's usually happening right around Labor Day during an election year. Both of the two main presidential campaigns are furiously trying to identify, reach, and register voters who will probably vote for their candidate, mostly in the key battleground states. Donald Trump is beefing up his ground game in Colorado. Her ground game is very, very strong. All eyes after the convention are going to be on the ground game. Organization, ground game. Ground game. Ground game, a term I was even familiar with. You know, when you hear ground game, you say, what the hell is that? The ground game is the nuts and bolts of how a campaign reaches voters and tries to get them to come out and vote for their candidate. It's a little bit different from what you might think of in your head as what a campaign is. The speeches, the debates, the television ads. Because it's really an individualized approach to finding specific people and getting them to act in a certain way. This is No One Knows Anything, the politics podcast from BuzzFeed News. I'm Rosie Gray. Today we're talking about ground game and the strategies both campaigns are using to turn out the vote. The Clinton campaign is doing pretty much a traditional ground game operation in the key battleground states. The Trump campaign, on the other hand, has really bucked tradition in a few key ways. They're relying on huge rallies still to reach voters. They're not really doing traditional on-the-ground organizing to the same extent as previous campaigns. They don't have a lot of field offices, and they're relying on the Republican Party to do a lot of that kind of organizing for them. Joining me now is Tarini Party. Hi, Tarini. Hey, Rosie. So, Tarini, let's talk a little bit about, you know, what each campaign is doing ground game-wise in the key states. Yeah, so you and I have been driving around, you know, trying to figure out what is actually going going on on the ground. We sure have. In, in <laughs> these key states. And it's been, a, it's, been a, it's been pretty interesting to see. On the one side, you have Hillary Clinton, who, as you know, we said, is running a very traditional campaign. She has hundreds of, of paid staff and volunteers in some of these states. She has a lot of field offices. You know, they're knocking on doors. They're making their phone calls. And then you have the Trump campaign, and they're still sort of getting things started. You know, they've been doing the rallies, and their sort of thinking is that people don't pay attention before Labor Day. And then in the meantime, you have the Republican Party and you have the state parties investing in, you know, the ground game while the Trump campaign is still sort of figuring it out. So, you know, you and I drove around, I guess, a few weeks ago (laughs) in uh, in Pennsylvania and Ohio trying to find Trump's field offices. And we had some trouble in locating them. And some of them looked like they had not been used uh, in at least a few months. But, you know, one thing that, you know, the argument from the Trump side is, like you were just saying, that voters don't necessarily really tune in until after Labor Day. And that, you know, obviously what worked for them in the primary was holding these huge rallies that and that was a way for them to reach a lot of voters at once. And so do you kind of feel like this general election is is a test? Actually, it's a sort of interesting test case of whether you can whether you can do that in the general. I think it is a, definitely a test case. And campaigns are evolving a lot. A lot of Republicans have made the case to me that the Clinton campaign is too traditional and you don't actually need that many paid staff or volunteers anymore right. because the campaigns are very data driven. And so, you know, to knock on 100 doors, you can kind of narrow down exactly how many of those voters you need and then sort of target the voters 
more so than you could in the past. So, you know, it, it might be spin or it might actually turn out to be true. We'll find out in, in November. But mm-hmm. um, but for now, they're definitely taking a very different approach than has been done in the past. And either they could win and prove themselves right. And maybe we'll see future presidential campaigns run this way. Uh, but for now, everyone is kind of watching to see why they're still, you know, very slowly getting this infrastructure ready. What exactly is the ground game in terms of reaching out to voters? Like, what what does the interaction between the campaign and a prospective voter look like? So the party and campaigns have data that, you know, tells them whether they're likely Republican voters, you know, if they've voted in past elections and how they've voted. And they use this to sort of figure out how to reach out to them and what they're going to say to them. So some of the voters are going to get door knocks. Some might get phone calls. I have been on a few rounds of door knocking with, you know, Republican groups and, and, and other volunteers. And a lot of times, you know, you don't even reach a voter when you're knocking on these doors, but you leave them enough literature so that they're, you know, ideally educated on on what the party stands for and what the candidates are all about. And I think one thing that's sort of key to note here is that ground game is kind of the least glamorous part of a campaign. It's sort of the most sort of in the weeds, granular type of work on the campaign. It's not as sort of sexy as, you know, making ads or writing speeches. Definitely not sexy. I mean, whether you're on the the data end of it and doing, you know, the computer nerdy (laughs) stuff or you're sweating it out in 100 degree, you know, weather, Florida, North Carolina, a lot of these places are very humid and knocking on doors and sweating it out is is definitely not sexy. So we're going to take a closer look at four states where each candidate's ground game can make a big difference in what voters do in November. First, we're going to talk with Marlon Marshall, who's Hillary Clinton's director of state campaigns and political engagement, uh, about what her campaign is doing in Florida, which, as we know, is a key battleground state with 29 electoral votes. Then we'll take a look at North Carolina, a swing state where Republicans have yet to launch a serious ground game operation. And you'll hear from Republican North Carolina Senator Tom Tillis. Plus, we'll talk about two battleground states where Trump and Clinton are taking very different approaches to field organizing, and that's Pennsylvania and Ohio. So first up is Florida. Florida is really one of the most important swing states. It has a large number of electoral votes. It's a big, diverse state that has in the past gone for both Democrats or Republicans. And right now it's actually pretty close in the polls. The Real Clear Politics polling average has Donald Trump within three points of Hillary Clinton. So it's actually... She doesn't have that much of a comfortable lead uh, in Florida. But one thing about ground game is that it can really make the difference in a tight race of just one or two points, which is what Florida could end up being. Joining me now to talk about that is Marlon Marshall, Hillary Clinton's director of state campaigns and political engagement. Hi, Marlon. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. So we're going to zone in on one particular state for a little bit, which is Florida, which is obviously one of the most important battleground states. Describe for us a little bit what your ground game operation looks like in Florida. How many campaign offices are you dealing with down there? Uh, how many paid staff, et cetera? Yeah, we have uh, 34, and that's it's increasing by the day, uh, offices in the state of Florida. Uh, we have hundreds of staff, and their day-to-day is, you know, they are recruiting volunteers, uh, and the volunteers are the ones who are out there uh, doing the work to help us win the state, whether it be knocking on doors or registering voters or, you know, making phone calls. And so our organizing staff 
make sure that we have the presence in the community and uh, find those volunteers to engage in our program. Right. So on the topic of volunteers, you know, using volunteers to organize, that was a key part of the campaign's primary strategy. Yep. Does that how how much and to what extent does that change in the general? I think it's just mostly size. Right. So in the primary, you are the number of people you're trying to reach is, is just smaller. Uh, and in the general election, uh, it's it's much larger. So, you know, the size and scope of what we're trying to do is different. Uh, and some of our s- strategies are different. So our one of our key to being successful in a state like Florida is to uh, expand the electorate, so to register voters and then ultimately to turn them out. So uh, there's some different strategic objectives than we had in the primary, um, but overall organizing is relationships, meeting people where they are and pulling people into the process. And that theory uh, has always been the same throughout this entire campaign. In terms of Florida specifically, you know, Hillary Clinton does not necessarily have a huge cushion in Florida right now. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was just looking at the RCP average today. I think Trump is within, you know, two or three points. Mm -hmm. Given that you guys are outspending Trump by a large margin on the air and also have a much more built out ground operation, is it are you surprised that that she's not doing better? No, it's August. And so I don't think you can look at a poll in August and have that be the um, you know, determining factor on election day. If anything, I think, as you said, the the race being two, three, four points, depending on which public poll you look, validates our strategy, where which is we need to continue to register voters and expand the electorate, but then you need to turn them out. And that means you have to have a large organizing presence. Uh, if you have a good ground game, that can get you extra two to three points. Um, from the latest I've seen in Florida talking to our team, I know Trump just opened up some offices, but he has very little organization in, in the state from a staffing and volunteer perspective. And if you, even if he were to get started now, you know he's at a deficit. Uh, it takes a lot of time to build those relationships and uh, get folks engaged. It's not, nothing you can do overnight. Could you talk a little bit about the sort of process of registering a voter, particularly in Florida, uh, and then sort of getting them ready to vote? Like how much time is spent registering someone versus keeping in touch with them and making sure that they turn out to the polls? And if you could speak a little bit also about sort of some of the cultural considerations as well. I mean, obviously, Florida has a very large Hispanic vote. um, And what are some of the particular things that you're doing in that respect? Absolutely. Um, So just, you know, Stepping back, getting someone to fill out a voter registration form takes, you know, five to seven minutes. Uh, Once folks register uh, and uh, make it to the voter file, we absolutely uh, follow back up with them. Uh, And all that builds, you know, regular voter contact that over the last few days will ultimately hopefully turn those folks out. Um, The other thing in Florida, there's about 20 days of uh, early voting where people can vote early, uh, you can vote by mail in Florida, so also letting people know their options. With regards to our specific outreach in different communities, first, our team in Florida is super diverse, and I'm very proud of them. They uh, have hired many staff who are from the state of Florida who look like the communities are organizing in. They know the hotspots in those communities for where they need to go register voters. Uh, and so we've been working with different small businesses in, in different cities in Florida, uh, the barbershop and beauty salon, um, historically black colleges and universities. Those are places in African-American communities. Uh, that's the kind of you know tactical pieces we get into on the ground. 
to make sure we can do as efficient an outreach as possible and reach as many people as possible. And uh, so far, it proves to be working. So the Trump campaign's theory in Florida, which is something that, you know, we've done some reporting on, um, is that although they are now starting to build out their ground game, they've really relied on these huge rallies, basically, to kind of substitute for organizing in a lot of cases. And, you know, they're able to sort of bring people into the system uh, who attend their rallies and then keep in touch with them that way. Um, and, the you know, I've, I've spoken with uh, the director of their Florida campaign who has made this point to me basically saying, look, you know, he can reach 40,000 people over the course of four days doing a few rallies and then we keep them in the system. We talk to them. We make sure they're registered, et cetera. I mean, do they have a point? No. I mean, the, look, having rallies and getting people energetic is is important. Um, when you take the number 40,000 you just mentioned and you think about the millions of people who are going to be voting in the state of Florida, that's just a fraction. Also, we have we use a lot of um, local knowledge and a lot of data to know where our voters are. And so um, I think we reach way more than 40,000 people um, uh, in, in any given week, frankly, in a few days via our voter contact, our door knocking, our phone calls uh, to people we know we need to talk to, whether we need to persuade those folks to vote for Hillary Clinton or, uh, you know, talk to them about why it's important for them to show up. How much are you guys reaching out to uh, to Republican voters or to independent voters? Uh, in a state like Florida, you need everything. Uh, ultimately, you need to, um, again, expand the electorate and turn out our supporters. Uh, but you also need to reach out to folks who uh, may be undecided, may be uh, independents, may be Republicans. So, um, you know, a lot of our media, our earned media is doing that. We've had, you know, surrogates in state who uh, whose message is resonating with vo- those voters. Um, the good news, in my opinion, is we're not changing our message. <laughs> our message about being stronger together, about building that economy that works for everyone and not just those at the top is resonating with um, uh, supporters, is resonating with folks who are independent, uh, and is resonating with some Republicans, too. And I think when you have those that combination, uh, I think it's going to help us win a state like Florida. But are you targeting people like that with, you know, phone calls, mail, door knocks? Yeah, Absolutely. There's a system in place to, to, to reach them and to bring them over, basically, Absolutely. instead of just earned media. Yeah. And not necessarily every, everybody. You know, again, using how do we be most efficient with our program, knowing we only have 71 days left. And uh, it would be hard to personally contact every single voter in the state of Florida. Uh, and while we will hope to do as much as we can, uh, we're looking at folks who are you know open to Hillary Clinton's message. And those are the ones we're going to be reaching out to. OK, great. Well, Thank you, Marlon, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. I thought it was interesting how he definitely said that they are targeting Republican voters, but made made it very clear that they're not changing their message, which, as we know, has been a concern for, you know, the Bernie Sanders side of the party, the right. more liberal wing. Uh, so he, he didn't want to make it seem like they were moderating or being conservative in any way to reach out to these types of voters. Right. Though I would be curious to to hear some of the phone calls that those types of voters are yeah. getting and to see some of the mail that they're getting and see, you know, whether it is different. 
Um, because, you know, there's a difference between changing your message and also doing a targeted appeal. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of it is national security. Yeah. Uh, and then also kind of the ad that they have, uh, you know, your kids are watching kind of thing. Our children and grandchildren will look back at this time at the choices we are about to make. That's another way to get, you know, suburban moms, the the Republican, white, college-educated, mostly female voters who might vote for Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. So, Tarini, you were in North Carolina recently taking a look at what Republicans are doing there. What's your impression of how their ground game is coming along? So the ground game in North Carolina is just getting started, and that's what's concerning a lot of Republicans in the state. You know, it's one that's traditionally voted for a Republican president, and there's some polls coming out that are showing Clinton not just leading Trump, but leading by a decent amount. And depending on that margin, you know, if Clinton wins by, say, more than five points— that could really impact the down-ballot candidates. And there are a lot of big races this time in North Carolina. The governor is up for re-election. There's a senator, Senator Richard Burr, who's up for re-election. And then, you know, this even down to the state legislature, they're scared they could lose a lot of seats. Um, I spoke to some Republicans who said, you know, this has the potential to be the one of the worst elections for Republicans in the state in a long time. You know, some described it as a potential political tsunami for the party. Right. And this is part of why ground game is so important, right? Because it's not just about the presidential candidate. It's about protecting what Republicans have in the state all over the ballot. Exactly. And so I spoke with Senator Tom Tillis, who won in North Carolina in 2014, uh, about this sort of down-ballot effect. So something you should know, I covered Tillis's campaign, his his Senate campaign in, in 2014, and it was a lot of fun and a lot of food. Uh, we stopped at several barbecue restaurants along the way, and I even watched him milk a cow. So I want to start off by going back to around this time two years ago. You were campaigning around North Carolina. Uh, From what I remember, you were milking a cow at the state fair (laughs) for your Senate race. Uh, And you ended up winning in a year that was very good for Republicans. Can you walk us through what it takes to win a very competitive state race uh, in an increasingly purple state like North Carolina? Uh, It it requires a, a real combination of your core campaign apparatus, the get-out-the-vote effort from the state party and and uh, other entities that are operating independently. In a state like North Carolina, where Obama wins in 08, loses in 12, I win by one and a half percentage points. It's clearly one of these purple, trending blue states, and you have to get all the votes out. You have to convince some conservative Democrats to vote for you, unaffiliated, and that requires intensive voter contact. You know, comparing North Carolina to other states, what sort of what sort of voter contact is needed to get the ground game that you need to win statewide? One would be very targeted mail, which is something that the campaigns and the state party can uh, do together on a coordinated basis. But it's also targeted phone calling and door knocking. You know, we're a state of almost 10 million people, 50 percent urban, 50 percent rural. So you got to carry messages that are the, the important things, and not a different message on the same topic, but there are things that are important in eastern North Carolina if you're in a heavy agriculture community that would be different than the message you bring to the suburbs of, say, Greensboro. 
But Republicans have a lot at stake in North Carolina. Governor Pat McCrory is up for re-election. So is Senator Richard Burr. Do you think North Carolina could go blue again? And how would that affect those down-ballot races? Uh, You know, I think that clearly if uh, Mr. Trump wins North Carolina, that creates the right kind of environment to make it uh, relatively easy for both of them to be reelected. But I think that they can win in spite of what occurs at the top of the ticket. I'm hopeful that that's Donald Trump, but I think that they can win either way. Do you think there's been enough investment in resources in those voter contact, uh, in ads? Uh, I know there's a new round of ads announced by the Trump campaign recently. Some of that money is going to be spent in North Carolina. But but is there enough of an investment in the state right now from the party, from the campaign, uh, on both sides? Well, we'll never know. I think that what, what we probably, uh, for our part, we need to make it clear that North Carolina is a battleground state. There is no certainty in re-election for any of our elected officials, whether it's Governor McCrory or Richard Burr. They are absolutely capable of winning. But it's a lot like mine. You know, I had in 2014 the most expensive Senate race in, in U.S. history. There was $80 million almost mm-hmm. dollars uh, spent against us and about uh, $35, $40 million spent for us. Um, so the money and the resources matter, but at the end of the day, a well-executed campaign can overcome a lot of dollar differences. It is very clear that the Democratic Senatorial Committee, the Democratic Governors Association, and other organizations have targeted North Carolina. And I'm, uh, I assume that those who tend to support us, our equivalent third parties, are watching that and make the right decisions to create the, uh, what, what we would consider to be the air cover as we execute the ground games over the next two months. So I thought it was really interesting that Senator Tillis talked about, you know, his Senate campaign, which was very expensive and kind of the money needed and the investment needed to win in North Carolina this year. He mentioned third parties or outside groups, you know, super PACs and nonprofits that are getting increasingly involved uh, in elections and kind of the impact they could have. And that's key to note because, you know, with the lack of investment coming from the Trump campaign, although that is now, you know, starting to change, there's been concern from Republicans and a lot of them are kind of hoping that outside groups come in and sort of save the day. You know, there are, I know there are some donors uh, who I've spoken with who are trying to figure out the best way to, you know, start these sort of outside groups uh, to, you know, make up for the lack of advertising and ground game uh, in North Carolina. So what would be the hurdles in, in that sort of approach of relying on these outside groups in terms of, you know, achieving the level of, of success ground game wise that they need to do? So when it comes to ground game, sure, you can have a group spending a lot of money, you know, hiring people to knock on doors or getting volunteers. But at the end of the day, they cannot coordinate with the campaign legally. So, you know, they kind of take their messages and their cues from what they're seeing, uh, you know, on TV and reading in uh, in the newspaper about what the campaign is doing. But when you're not able to coordinate, it does make things more challenging. On the advertising front, you know, if the outside groups choose to spend a lot of money on behalf of Trump or any of these down-ballot candidates, again, they can't coordinate, but also it's more expensive for them to buy ad time than it would be for a candidate. And this is actually one thing in which, you know, the RNC does have something of an advantage because they can coordinate with the candidate. 
Exactly. So in their, you know, in their approach to reaching out to voters, knocking on doors, they can coordinate. And in North Carolina, actually, because the Trump campaign does not yet have any field offices, uh, the campaign staffers are actually working out of the state party headquarters in Raleigh. Right. So they're really working hand in hand. They are. And that's something that Republicans in the state who still think that they can win North Carolina and that sort of this concern and this talk is overblown, you know, they'll point that out and they'll say that, you know, we're working with them every day. We see them every day. And that's something that's different from past approaches that presidential nominees have done. So in all four of the states that we're talking about today, both Trini and I have done a bunch of reporting, driving around and looking for field offices. And the last two states that we're going to talk about are Ohio and Pennsylvania. So, Trini, you were in Ohio recently, and you found something interesting with a certain campaign, well, not campaign office, right? <laughs> yes. So I I drove around Ohio and Pennsylvania, and I noticed that uh, some of these offices that were listed on you know the Trump campaign website as official field offices weren't quite as official anymore. For example, in Pennsylvania, I stopped by an office outside of Pittsburgh and, you know, it was closed at the time, but I got in touch with the person who was in charge. And she basically said that the office shut down after the primary, but she decided to take it over. So this is just run by volunteers who love Donald Trump and they're just doing their thing. And, you know, they had an interesting event where they jumped out of an airplane above a field where Trump's name had been spray painted into it. So they're definitely taking a more colorful approach toward this ground game operation thing. Um, And then in Ohio, uh, it was a sort of a similar case where volunteers or actually Trump supporters noticed that there wasn't really an organized effort around the Dayton area. So they decided to take matters into their own hands. And um, some of these supporters actually opened up sort of a field office inside a home. So it was a regular house on the street in Ohio, but totally decked out in Trump signs and mm-hmm. like patriotic colors. Um, and they're registering voters there. They're you know giving out Trump yard signs, things like that. And they're hoping that other Trump supporters sort of replicate that model in different swing states if they're not seeing enough of an effort or enough of, you know, an organized, um, you know, infrastructure from the campaign or the state party. Right. And this all sounds sort of well and good, but you have to remember how crucial Ohio particularly is uh, in the presidential election. I mean, I don't think a Republican has won the election without winning Ohio ever, or at least not in the modern era. Exactly. And so Ohio is crucial. And it is, you know, a state where Trump is doing relatively well compared to some of the other swing states right now. So what these volunteers are doing is actually like very important work. And uh, there's, you know, some concern that these volunteers are sort of just going rogue and, you know, not since they're not really coordinating with the campaign, they could have a message that's different from, you know, what the campaign is putting out. Um, but at, but at, the, at the end of the day, the campaign is getting boots on the ground, which is what's needed uh, at this very, you know, crucial time, you know, after Labor Day. And these two states in particular for Trump are important because he really appeals to a certain type of kind of Rust Belt, you know, white working class voter. This is, you know, fertile ground for... Yeah. For the Trump campaign. This is where they should be really investing and doing really well. And in Ohio, sure, where the the polls are still pretty tight and he could win Ohio. 
But in Pennsylvania, it seems to be getting tougher and tougher. Yeah. She's really, Hillary Clinton is pulling away in polls. And, you know, if post Labor Day, there's going to be a span of a few weeks where, you know, they're they're already, you know, putting more money into ads, but they're probably going to start investing more in infrastructure. And if, you know, it doesn't, if they, because if they don't do that, that could really cost them the election. So I guess one of the key issues here is what is Trump doing? What is his campaign doing instead of really carrying out a fully fleshed out ground game? And, you know, we touched on this earlier when we were talking about how his Florida state director has said that, you know, they they really view the rallies as being key to their operation in terms of reaching voters and turning them out. Uh, You know, is there I mean, does a rally count as in some weird way as being part of a ground game? I think that's, you know, that's definitely the strategy that the Trump campaign has chosen. And it's actually also interesting to see what Mike Pence, his running mate, is doing. So in some of these in Ohio and Pennsylvania, I followed around Pence and he was doing sort of the more the smaller events and the town halls and talking to voters. So it's not, you know, a random person knocking on your door, but it is sort of different. It's more personalized. It's more personalized for sure. And more, you know, different from those big rallies that Trump is doing. So they are trying to sort of use different approaches towards their campaigning in the state to sort of make up for potentially a lack of infrastructure. Um, And, you know, Maybe that will make up for the the lack of field offices and and staff. Maybe it won't. Well, the thing about a rally is that what it really does is energize people who are already supporting you. I mean, if you're going to a rally for a political candidate, especially at this point in the cycle, that that probably means that you're supporting that person already. Whereas with the things that make up the ground game, things like door knocks, uh, direct mail, etc., that's really about reaching out to people who might not vote for you that you're trying to convince to vote to vote for you. And that's really kind of what general election campaigning, you know, is about, because in order to win a general election, you have to expand the pool of voters that are going to vote for you to a much bigger size. But but yeah, I mean, so far they haven't you know, there, there has not been like a real concerted effort to switch up their strategy in that respect. So that is starting to change, but not changing as early as and as quickly as we would have expected. So, I mean, we've talked a lot about what uh, what the Trump campaign is doing ground game wise in terms of what the Clinton campaign is doing. I mean, you know, it's basically it's kind of what you would expect. I mean, she's got hundreds of field organizers. They've got, a you know, a very a big operation. You could even say critics might say like a bloated, bloated up. Mm-hmm. operation uh, that maybe isn't as flexible. Um and, and, you know, there's something to be said for the idea that given the Clinton campaign's advantages in terms of organization, maybe and, she should be doing better than she is. And ad spending. You know, they've yeah. been spending for months and millions of dollars. Uh, Donald Trump is just getting started. And, yeah, and especially in you know Florida where uh, she, as you mentioned, doesn't have as much of a cushion. Um, should she be doing better? But Right. So, I mean, it's a... It's an interesting test case for this election because, you know, if Donald Trump ends up doing a lot better than people think he's going to, it could kind of show that traditional ground games aren't as important as people may have thought. Exactly. So, um, you know, I guess we have about 70 days left. Thank God. (laughs) Please end. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I'm sure actually both candidates are saying that too right now. 
yeah, so they're they're running out of time. They know that. And in some of these states, they are really trying to get their act together. No One Knows Anything is produced by Meg Kramer. With editorial oversight from Katherine Miller and Eleanor Kagan. And production help from Julia Furlan. Our music is composed by Beauty Pill. Subscribe to No One Knows Anything on iTunes. On Twitter, we're at No One Knows. Or you can email us at no one knows anything at buzzfeed.com. I'm Rosie Gray. And I'm Tarini Party. And we'll be back soon with more things we don't know. <laughs> <laughs>